0: Alright, brace yourself. The and Better podcast episode 14. Here's the tease. There's an implication there. The implication is, is that if at the resurrection, there's only one enemy left to be defeated, death, that means that God's church, His people, have been walking in some level of extraordinary victory over all the other enemies. Because death would be, will have been the last one to give it up. Congratulations through the powerful providence of a benevolent benefactor. You've stumbled onto this delicious digital booyah base hosted by yours. Truly hipster grandfather, David A. Holland here, we explore the too good to be true, poorly understood, badly neglected realities of what Jesus actually launched 2000 years ago, a new covenant, a better covenant based on better promises. So, check your religion at the door, grab a beverage, grab a Bible, strap in, gird your loins. This is the New and Better Podcast. We've been talking about the kingly ministry of Jesus, and we saw in the Old Testament last week, we saw picture after picture, image after image, and type after type of the fact that things that God plants, grows. Uh, we saw that there are three ways that God does everything in the earth. There are three aspects to everything He does. That There's this initiating judicial aspect. God makes it legal first in the courts of heaven. Then there's this progressive unfolding aspect that it grows over time. And then there comes a time when it's consummated, it's complete, it's, it's finished. So it's, it's definitive, legal, it's progressive, and then it's consummated. We saw that repeatedly in the Old Testament. We saw what Jesus said about his own kingship. Um, one of the things that we, that we saw, we looked uh, in his, his words in Acts, one of his final things he said to his disciples right before he left the earth, was he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me all authority, not only in heaven, but on earth, had been given to him. We looked at that in the light. What we're, what we're asking the word to inform is which of two views is correct, because there are essentially, in the evangelical world, there's two views about the kingdom of God. One is that the kingdom is primarily a future prospect. It's going to come suddenly at some future date, and when it comes, it, it's going to produce almost instantaneous massive changes on planet earth that where where the earth is concerned the kingdom is primarily a future prospect to us there's another view it's been present in the body of Christ for 2000 years is that the view that is that the kingdom is a present prospect that it it is that Jesus's rule on earth has begun and is progressively unfolding it was judicially established in Jesus' life and ministry, his death and resurrection. So that was the judicial piece of that equation. And that we're now in the progressive unfolding piece of that equation. And the day is going to come when it's going to be consummated. It will be consummated. So we're going to continue to examine that after spending a lot of time in the Old Testament last week. We're going to look at the Pauline Revelation we'll visit Jesus' words just a little bit more as well. But we're going to see what Paul had to say. Now, Paul and his revelation of the kingdom, his revelation of the new covenant uh, is an interesting thing. Many people have observed that there is some tension, seemingly, between the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Paul. Uh, I went I grew up in church and was born again at an early age. And, and I didn't even, I, I felt this tension, but I didn't even really realize it or recognize it until it, once you see it, you can't unsee it. If you're operating from certain presuppositions, remember in the, in the first session we talked about the power of assumptions or presuppositions? They color your decisions and you come to very logical conclusions if you presuppose something that's not correct. If you do what I did earlier this week and Google Jesus versus Paul, (laughs) you'll get thousands and you'll see thousands and thousands of hits and links to, to thousands of articles and blog posts and debates and sermons that point out the fact that seemingly Jesus and Paul have two different views on a lot of different subjects. Once you sort of become aware of that, you realize that maybe in most of your Christian life, you had, you had lived with a little bit of that tension that sometimes you're over with Paul in Romans 1 and you're just being very, very excited about Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And you just soak in that a little bit and then you kind of flip back a few books. And then all of a sudden Jesus is telling you that if, you, if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. There, there's this all of a sudden this tension one moment you're with Paul where he's telling you that, you know, you don't have to worry about special dates and new moons and what you eat or any of that kind of stuff. And then you kind of flip back over and then you, you're in a discourse with Jesus is telling the Pharisees that, you know, not only should they have tithed their mint and cumin and dill, they should have done all, all those things they should have done and then mu- and, and much more. So we sort of live most of our lives with this cognitive dissonance between the, the grace message that Paul delivers in talking about not only not only uh, the rule of, of, of Jesus on the earth uh, and his victory over death and what that means, but uh, also the, the implications for just grace. Well, those of you who were here last week, I'm sorry, not last week, uh, but for the first session of these that we did three years ago, whenever that was, where, where we examined the, uh, the prophetic ministry of Jesus. If you understand that what most of Jesus was, was saying in his three years of earthly ministry, he was functioning as the final Old Testament prophet to the last generation of Jewish people who were going to have the temple as part of their sacrificial system. Uh, if you understand that what Jesus wasn't in his words establishing a new covenant theology, he was calling the people of the old covenant to repentance and to, a, to 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 receive a heart that could receive the new. We talked about that for you know for for quite a bit and we reviewed it last week. All of that, all of that tension goes away. All of that, all of that Jesus versus Paul, poof. It just completely disappears. Remember what we talked about in just terms of the power, the powers of presuppositions, what presuppositions do. And if you don't presuppose, if you don't understand that most of Jesus's earthly ministry prior prior to the last two weeks of his life, when he moved into priest mode was about being that prophetic voice to that generation of Jewish people. Uh, That generation who within 40 years were going to see the Roman army surround Jerusalem, kill millions, uh, disperse the rest, destroy Jerusalem, uh, destroy the temple where one, one stone will be left upon the other. That generation, 40 years essentially after Jesus' ascension, almost to the day the temple was destroyed. If you understand what Jesus was saying, all of that tension between Jesus and Paul goes away it's 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 interesting For, t- turn in your bibles to galatians chapter 1 i've always found it interesting to examine the timeline of paul's life paul's life and ministry it's easy to read the book of acts and think that the bo- the events of the book of acts maybe occurred over a two or three year pe- period when the fact of the matter is is that decades are unfolding across the book of acts it's 30 years after most of the events of the book of acts uh, or at least it's 30 years after the early events, after that Acts 2 day of Pentecost thing that Luke is writing uh, his account to most, his most excellent friend, Theophilus. And he's, he's basically accounting what's happened over the previous 30 years in the book of Acts. And one of the things we see there is that, you know, Paul gets knocked off of his horse or his donkey on the way to uh, Damascus, and he t- tells a little bit in, in Galatians 1. He gives just a little piece of insight into that, into that event. In Galatians 1 verse 15, Paul says, But even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. Then it pleased him to, rev- to reveal his son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. When this happened, I did not rush out to consult with any human being. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to consult with those who were apostles before I was. Instead, I went away into Arabia and later returned to the city of Damascus. Then three years later, I went to Jerusalem to get to know Peter. Spent two weeks there. So if everything Jesus said and did in his earthly ministry was designed to, by God, to inform New Covenant theology... It is most unusual that what Paul did when he got knocked off his horse and Jesus basically spoke to him and said, why are you persecuting me? He was blinded temporarily, receives his sight back, preaches a sermon there in uh, Damascus. The first thing I would have expected him to do is run, not walk to Jerusalem and interview everyone that was in Jesus' circle would have interviewed his mom, would have interviewed his disciples, and just spent several years soaking in everything that they had to say about what Jesus said and did. And that is not what happened. Paul, basically, when when he receives Jesus and the Holy Spirit, uh, his eyes are open to a lot of what the the Old Testament Scriptures were pointing to where Jesus was concerned. He preaches a quick sermon there in in the synagogue among some believers, And then he goes into the Arabian desert for three years. And Paul's testimony is that in three years of wandering in the desert, basically Jesus comes to him and speaks to him and downloads to him this revelation about the new covenant. The fact of the matter is Paul is writing books to letters. He's writing letters to churches uh, that have been founded before the gospels even get written. He, he, he writes, uh, this book of Galatians was probably the first one he wrote, probably in A.D. 48 and or 38. And he writes 1 and 2 Thessalonians, maybe a couple of other letters. And then Mark gets around to writing his gospel. And then he write, Paul writes a whole lot of other letters uh, to other churches. And then ultimately Matthew and Luke get written. But Paul isn't reflecting anything he's learned from the disciples. After his three years in the desert, he says here he goes to Jerusalem, spent 15 days in Jerusalem, but none of the disciples were there except for Peter and uh, one other. I can't remember. There was one other of the the original 12. Yes, thank you. So he spends some time with them and then leaves again and doesn't come back. He doesn't see him again for 14 years. He's... And then the next time he comes back and encounters Peter uh, in Jerusalem, uh, he rebukes him because he's doing it wrong. He found Peter had gotten sucked back into that kind of Old Covenant Judaizing thing. He walks in and says, Peter, you've lost the plot. You've, you've basically drifted off course here somewhere along the way. You've, you've become more of an Old Covenant person again. And had to yank him back into, uh, into reality, and Peter repented of it, and got back on the right, got back on the right course. There's nothing about, about Paul's early ministry that in any way reveals any indication that the, the teaching that Jesus did in his earthly ministry was designed to inform strictly new, new, new covenant theology. There's there is a tension between the two. If you try to to reconcile that, there's a Bible uh, teacher. There's a famous preacher, uh, activist, very politically liberal, but he's uh, he's well known for his preaching and teaching and advocacy of the for the poor. He wrote a book a few years ago called Red Letter Christianity. And the argument he's making in his book is that we should we should ignore everything paul is saying basically if if we're going to be forced to choose between a christianity framed around the words of jesus and a christianity framed around the words of paul obviously jesus is our savior jesus is the man he's the guy so obviously we need to build our new we we need to build our theology around jesus words and downgrade the words of paul where our theology is concerned and that's a thing That, I mean, that's, that's actually a thing in the, in, in the body of Christ is saying, let's have new covenant theology based on the words of Jesus. There's a guy who's written a book recently who his theory is that you should basically disregard all of Paul's letters, uh, that you should just pay attention to the the gospels and any of the letters written by any of the 12, like first John, second John, third John and James. Interesting. James doesn't even mention Jesus. Uh, in it, in anywhere, there's no mention of Jesus anywhere in the book of James. But um, this individual is advocating the fact that in the book of Revelation, the the enemy of the enemy of the church is Paul. Paul basically is this heretic who got in and steered everything off. So there's a lot of crazy stuff out there, and all of it is built up on this presupposition or or a failure to understand. A lack of understanding that Jesus, the prophet, had a prophetic ministry, and his words need to be viewed through the light of an old of an Old Testament prophet. Until he moved into priest mode, and now he's moved into king mode, which is what we're going to look at tonight. We mentioned last week that in First, you don't have to turn over there, but in First Corinthians four twenty, Paul was writing the Corinthians, and he he's mentioning to them that there are some people there who have risen up in the church who are, who talk a great game. They're great talkers and they're leading some of the people in the church astray and they have great ideas. They have very, very great lofty ideas and their words are very persuasive. So in, in 1 Corinthians four 20, Paul says, I'm going to come and visit you guys. And, but I'm not coming with fancy words. I'm not coming with persuasive arguments. he says, for the kingdom of God does not consist in words but in power. There's a couple of nuggets of truth inside Paul's warning that he's going to come. He's going basically just warn these great talkers that when I get there, it's not going to be we're not going to see who has better arguments. We're going to see on whose life power is resting. and then you can pay attention to whoever you want to pay attention. The implication there first of all is that he's Paul's presuming that the kingdom is a present reality. Do you see that implication there? There's it's a presupposition in Paul's argument that the kingdom is a present reality, not essentially a future reality. But the second thing is that where the kingdom where the kingdom is, where the kingdom manifests, there's power. God's power Manifests in the kingdom. It's one of the reasons why this understanding is so important. If you survey all of the, all of the Word of God, you'll basically see that there are three, there are three reasons, three circumstances, three contexts for God's miracle power to manifest in the earth. Uh, one is the preaching of the gospel. Basically, at the end of at the end of Mark we see that God confirms the preaching of the word with signs following. So that miraculous signs are in part designed to validate the preaching of the word. So people will get saved. That's why for, in a lot of cases there are missionaries, there are missionaries who go to foreign lands and they're sent out of denominations that don't believe God still does miracles today. And then they go to foreign lands and see lots of miracles and they have to adjust their theology and they have to adjust what they say when they come back with their slideshow to the church (laughs) that sent them out because they can't, if if they tell the whole story, it's going to be a problem. spoke to numerous missionaries who'd gone out on the mission field and they couldn't come back and tell their stories because once they got out there on the mission field and started preaching the word of God, the word started being confirmed with miraculous signs. So Uh, That's one context for God's power to basically invade earth is in the the, confirm the preaching of his word. Another context is when we get a hold of the the message of grace Uh, or another way to think about it is we we get a hold of the reality of the depth and breadth of the finished work of Christ. When we understand how complete Christ's work was, when we understand and get when we internalize how utterly finished Jesus' work was, what He did for us, we something rises up within us and we stop disqualifying ourselves for power. We stop disqualifying uh, the people around us. It raises our expectations. There's this limiting thing that limits God's ability often to do what he wants to do in a, circumstances, in a circumstance because we're, we're simply disqualifying ourselves through sense, either a sense of shame or a sense of not, not um, measuring up uh, or whatever it is. But when you begin to understand grace, when you begin to understand what Jesus did for you and the fact that you are in him and he's in you, you're qualifying for God's blessings and you're qualifying for releases of, of His power into your life and into your circumstances and into the circumstances of the people you care about, all of a sudden you see more miracles. As people start to soak in that, that understanding, that, that teaching, they stop disqualifying themselves and all of a sudden God's power gets released. But there is a third context For miraculous power release. And that is the proclamation of and the expectation of the kingdom. That Jesus' rule on earth is not primarily a future prospect, but it is a present prospect. The alternative to that is a belief that essentially the enemy, Satan, the devil, is still the God of this world. But there is an aspect at which um, the enemy had legal rights and authorities prior to Jesus coming. But it's interesting, you know, when the context of Jesus saying, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven was right after he had basically been casting demons out of individuals. And then he transferred his power and authority to his disciples and they went out and cast out demons. They came back and said, amazing, Rabbi, we we had authority over demons in your name. And that's when Jesus said, yeah, I know. I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. There was this already this transfer of legal authority in this earth taking place. Even then, Jesus has not gone to the cross yet. Jesus has not been victorious over death, but even then, that The legal landscape, the legal paperwork of planet Earth was in the process of changing. It was in the process of flux. I'm getting way ahead of myself. We're going we're to get into that next week. But if you believe, as, as many people do, that the kingdom of God is not a present prospect on Earth, that belief is grounded in an assumption, a presupposition, that the enemy still has legal right is still the legal ruler of this domain that 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 legal transfer has not taken place yet. There are many people who are perfectly willing to believe that Jesus is the king in heaven, that he's on the throne, that he's the king, but where the earth is concerned, this is still the devil's ballgame and not Jesus's. Flip over in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter one. Let's see what Paul, after his three years in the desert, with a lot of face-to-faces with Jesus, the, the resurrected Jesus, and a download from the Holy Spirit. Let's see what Paul has to say about it. Ephesians chapter 1. Of course, awesome Ephesians chapter 1 is got all of those in Christ's, you know, in Christ, in Him. says it over and over again. This is a very Jesus-centric book, uh, and it's a very Jesus-centric opening for Paul. But I'm going to jump you to verse 19, where Paul says, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power. Notice the subject matter here is the subject is power. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Okay. Jesus has been seated, seating connotes enthroning at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Take note of that term heavenly realms because we're going to come back to that in just a moment. Now he is far above that now being because he has been seated at the right hand of the Father in heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authorities or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but in the world to come. Do you see it? As a matter of fact, it's, in, in Paul's construction here, it's not only about this present age, this present world, but he's saying, and also in the world to come. In our day, we sort of have it the other way around. We, we, have, no, we have no problem believing that Jesus is the ruler in the world to come. We have no problem with Jesus being that, his, that he gets his way and he's honored as king in the heavenly realms in the world to come. But Paul is saying very explicitly, because he is seated at the right hand of the Father, all authority, power, leadership, all those things are his. There's none higher than him. That's the definition of a king. A king is a person who there there is no power or authority higher than you. Hey friend, I'm hitting the pause button here for just a moment so you can experience the wonder of a little thing we call page two. Hey, if you're watching this on my YouTube channel, may I ask you to exercise your God given free will and hit that subscribe button. It's the right choice. I assure you, if you're listening on one of the podcast platforms, however, jump over to YouTube and uh, search David A. Holland, that's at David A. Holland and subscribe there. You'll not only be able to hear the soothing tones of my voice, but also take in the soothing, perfect roundness of my head on certain videos. Now, back to the scathingly brilliant insights I was sharing about today's topic. And those are the two elements that it really takes to be a king. You have to have both power and authority. There are lots of dictators who make themselves the boss in a coup, and they seize power, but they don't have legal authority. They don't have constitutional authority. It's not been legally done. There are kings from time to time who have basically been run out of their country. I remember when the Shah of Iran, who was a US ally, at one time Iran was a modern civilized place. The Shah of Iran uh, when the uh, Islamic Revolution hit Iran, the Shah had to leave the country. He was a he was royalty. The Shah was the king of Iran and he still was the king. He I think he was in, had cancer. He was in the hospital somewhere. This was in the in the 70s, early 70s. He was still the king, but he had no power. Uh, he, had, he was the legal ruler of, constitutional ruler of Iran with no power. If you're the king, active, you have power and authority. Keep moving. In the world to come, verse 22, God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things. Notice the past tense. This is not. This is not future tense. This is. A, this is all past tense. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made Him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is His body. It is made full and complete by Christ, who fills all things, everywhere, with Himself. Uh, let's move over a chapter. Remember the heavenly places thing that we just uh, saw in the first chapter of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter two, verse four, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life. When he raised Christ from the dead, it is only by God's grace that you have been saved for he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him. In the heavenly realms, there's that word again, because we are united with Christ Jesus. So there's this aspect in which not only has Christ been seated and he's been given all authority and power, all, he's over all authority. We've been seated with him in that place. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. Flip over to uh, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. This is Paul again. You know, Ephesians, Philippians, Col- and Colossians are basically Paul's tour de force on his Christology of the, the primacy of Jesus. They are Jesus-centric books. And in Colossians 1.13, he says something interesting. Uh, for he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear Son, who purchased our freedom And forgave us our sins. Again, Paul is speaking of the kingdom as if it's a present reality, not a future one, where our where there's been a transfer of legal citizenship. This is the legality uh, aspect of God's work and His redemptive work. Okay, there's a a number of other things we could dive into where Paul is concerned, but I want to jump back into the Old Testament for a second. Go back to Daniel. You'll remember from last week where we saw Daniel's little stone that became, uh, that crushed the feet of the serpent or the, the, the statue and then grew to be a mountain and then the mountain filled the whole world. Much of Daniel is, is about uh, visions he's had that's looking forward to the time when Jesus is going to come into the world, come into the earth. Uh, And a lot of these visions of Daniel's concern four beasts or four creatures. And those four creatures uh, represent four kingdoms. We we talked about that. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then Rome. And it's in the time of that fourth beast or that fourth creature that Jesus came onto the scene uh, and came into the world. Look at Daniel chapter seven. Daniel's having some more visions here. This is actually before He interpreted the king's dream about the statue. This was at an earlier date. Uh, Look at, just for context, look at verse 1. Earlier during the first year of King Belshazzar's reign in Babylon, Daniel had a dream and saw visions as he lay on his bed. So these are night visions. These are are dreams. These are God-given dreams uh, or visions that he's having in the night that have prophetic significance. So he sees these four beasts, four beasts or four creatures again, and these four creatures represent four kingdoms. Then in verse nine, uh, I watched as thrones were put in place and the ancient one or some translations, the ancient of days sat down to judge. Okay, he's basically having visions of, of, of heavenly visions, and now he's he's basically seeing the ancient of days. He's seeing God himself. And thrones are set up. It's interesting that the plural, you know, God only needs one chair probably, but a thrones, plural, are set up. So where, where, where are we at this point? What's our frame of reference? What's our perspective here? We're in heaven. We're in the throne room, basically. We're where God has a throne. Uh, thrones are put in place and the ancient one sat down to judge. His clothing was as white as snow his hair like purest wool. He sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire, and a river of fire was pouring out, flowing from his presence. Now, remember what I was, what I was saying last week about how some of these modern Bible translators all are always goofing with the numbers, and how, when, especially when you're in prophetic, symbolic passages of Scripture, the numbers are very important. The numbers mean something, and you can't just goof with the numbers and not lose the meaning. So here's here my my New Living Translation's doing it to me again. This verse, this translation says, millions of angels ministered to him. Well, that's in the Hebrew the word millions is not there. What is does somebody have a translation? Sometimes Exactly. The the first there was um, Thousands upon thousands, and then many millions, mine says, uh, minis- stood to attend him. What this passage of Scripture says, there are numbers in this passage of Scripture. First it says, thousands upon thousands of angels ministered to him. The thousands is a meaningful word, and we examined that last week. And then it says, 10,000 times 10,000 stood to attend him. It's just, just noting that because I find it extremely annoying. Then the court began its session and the books were opened up. You know, we keep talking about how God established the, the universe on a legal framework. And it says, now we're being told that God sat down to judge. We're at the throne room in heaven. God has sat down to judge. And then the court began its session, uh, and books were opened. Now jump down to, um, Verse 13, as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that the people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Once again, in this translation, there's something missing. Anybody, re, anybody have the New American Standard translation of the Bible? Yeah. Nancy, what read, um, read verse uh, 13 in the New American Standard. He kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. That's it. That's good. That's it. He came up to the ancient of days. That upness is in the Hebrew. It's there. Some of these translations eliminate it. It's not absolutely vital if you still understand that your your point of reference here is heaven. This vision, this glimpse is of heaven. And in there, he sees one like the Son of Man, who constantly constantly refer to themselves as the Son of Man. One like the Son of Man, and He comes up with the clouds to the Ancient of Days and sits down on the throne. Now, most of the body of Christ, especially who have have all been basically, we've all raised on this dispensational model, believe that what this verse is talking about is Jesus' second coming, because Jesus said He would come on the clouds. But is that the event that's being described right here? When did Jesus disappear into a cloud and go up into heaven? At the ascension. Uh, Jesus basically was with the 11. He ascends into heaven and disappears into a cloud. And then the disciples are staring into space until an angel startles them. What this is describing is the moment of Jesus' ascension. That you, if, if, and if you're seeing it from heaven's perspective, not earth's perspective, you're seeing God setting up a throne and he's setting up, just, he's basically called to heaven's court into session. Court is in session. The judge is on his throne. And then the son of man comes up with the clouds and is seated. And, and, and what happens? What happens when he arrives? He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over what? All the nations of the world. So why? That people of every race and nation and language would obey him. What did Jesus tell the disciples right before he he made that trip? He said, go into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, teaching them what? To do everything, teaching them to obey everything I've told you to do. Isn't that, weren't, isn't that, wasn't that his final instructions? Isn't that what this is describing? Jesus left those instructions and sat down at the right hand of the Father. So, let's look at one other group of um, scriptures. We've been swimming around in the Bible all night. Psalm one hundred and ten. There's a phrase that's repeated numerous times in the Bible. And if something keeps getting repeated, especially if it's repeated in the old and the new, maybe we should pay attention to it. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your powerful kingdom from Jerusalem. You will rule over your enemies or in some translations in the midst of your enemies. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Hebrew there is basically says, Yahweh said to my Adonai, Sit in the place of honor, sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Then you're going to extend your kingdom. It will start in Jerusalem, but then it will be extended from Jerusalem, and you'll rule in the midst of Of your enemies that's significant there's a number of things i could point to there but but one of them is that there's there's a this is a messianic prophecy first of all and there is a an implication here that the rule will be extended that essentially it will grow and it will advance and that rule will take place in the midst of enemies but there's a process uh that's uh, or there's a there's a promise That ultimately those enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. Now, Jesus quoted that passage of scripture once. It's in Matthew 22. Uh, You don't necessarily have to turn there, but it's the Pharisees were trying to place, you know, stump the Rabbi, and they had asked Jesus a couple of brain teaser questions, and he had, you know, dealt with them in a very incredible, clever way. And so then he was going to, he turns the tables on him. He's going to play stump the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So he asked them in Matthew 22 about this verse. If you look at verse 41, then surrounded by the Pharisees, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They replied, he is the son of David. Jesus responded, then why does David speaking under the inspiration of the spirit call the Messiah, my Lord? For David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at the uh, honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies beneath your your feet. Since David called the Messiah, my Lord, how can the Messiah be his son? There's a presupposition in Jesus's question here. He knew that the Pharisees held a presupposition that no descendant could ever be greater than the ancestor. This is in an Eastern context where the ancestors are honored, ancestors are revered, and it's very much the, the, the case today. And there's no way that a descendant could be greater than the ancestor. The ancestor would always be greater. And yet, Jesus is pointing out here that the descendant of David uh, would basically be greater. How, how, could the, how, could the, how could the older say to the younger call him, and call him Lord? The interesting thing here is that you know, Jesus was using this passage of Scripture basically just to, to, to blow their minds and to shut them up. And it did. But he's quoting it. It's on his mind. He's aware of this passage of scripture. It, it was something that he pointed them to, in talking about the Messiah. Well, this isn't the final time this this passage appears in Scripture. Flip over to <laughs> Hebrews chapter ten. I'll be wrapping it up shortly. Hebrews chapter ten. The writer of Hebrews is talking about the superiority of, of Jesus's high priesthood, to the. Uh, to the existing Jewish high priesthood. And he's talking about his sacrifice, comparing it to the, the old covenant animal sacrifices. And then in verse 12, he says, but our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand, where he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under His feet." So once again, we have the imagery of Jesus sitting down at the right hand of the Father at His throne, and what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that He will continue to sit there until His enemies are made a footstool for His feet. And yet, uh, many of us were raised on, on a, a theology and an eschatology that says there. The enemy, Jesus' enemies will not be made a footstool for his feet until he gets up off of that throne and comes back. That's not what the writer of Hebrews is suggesting. So one more passage of scripture about Jesus' enemies. We, we, we've seen that he's going to rule in the midst of his enemies. In other words, that rule will take place and yet he will still have enemies around him while he's ruling. Uh, And we've seen he's going, he's taken that seat at the right hand of the father and is going to remain there until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. So let's look at some of those, uh, what the word says about those enemies at 1 Corinthians 15. And this really will be it, I promise. 1 Corinthians 15. First of all, I, I would put you in remembrance of what Paul said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of the air that, uh, the the church's enemies are not other people, the church's enemies are not political parties or movements, or uh, they they can those people can be tools, but our enemies are spiritual, the enemies of Christ are demonic principalities and powers. In the fifteenth chapter of First Corinthians, Paul's basically making his case for the resurrection, first of all, for the case of the resurrection of of Christ himself, because some people were questioning that. And then for the resurrection of all believers, Uh, he spends the first 10 chapters there talking about basically, um, you know, if Jesus wasn't resurrected from the dead, we are all toast and we're all completely wasting our time because it's the linchpin of that victory over death, of that legal transfer that took took place. Jesus' resurrection is the key to that. So he's, he's making that case. And then he moves on to talking about the resurrection of all believers. Let's jump to verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, Now, the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. After that, the end will come when he will turn the kingdom over to God. So Jesus comes back and the dead are raised. Now, he doesn't mention the rapture here, but in other places, for example, in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, the rapture is tied topically with the resurrection. You know, Paul says what? The dead in Christ shall rise first, and then those who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet him in the air. Resurrection, rapture. The reason you have a rapture is because you have a resurrection. If you're going to catch all of the believers out of the world, living and dead, or, or, or all the dead believers out of the world, you have to do something with the live ones. Okay. What, are you, what, are you gonna, what are you going to do with them? Well, you, you can either strike them dead so that they, right before the resurrection, you strike everyone who's a believer dead so that they can be part of the resurrection from the dead. Or you just catch them away. But the, the rapture is not the show. The rapture is a byproduct of the show, which is the resurrection of all the believing dead. Then it says he's going to turn the kingdom over to God, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. For, this is, this is key, for Christ must reign, until he humbles all of his enemies beneath his feet. There's that phrase again. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Topic, resurrection from the dead. Jesus is about to turn the kingdom over to the Father, but the last piece of his kingdom conquest of earth is the conquest of death itself. The last enemy to be defeated is death the resurrection represents that defeat of death there's an implication there the implication is is that if at the resurrection there's only one enemy left to be defeated death that means that god's church his people have been walking in some level of extraordinary victory over all the other enemies because death would be will have been the last one to give it up and, the, and only the resurrection can basically kill that final enemy. What the, the, word, the, the picture that the Word is painting here again is that Jesus' victory was judicial. It was legally, the, the legal transfer of the title deed to right to rule planet Earth was changed. What, what Adam had surrendered in, in the fall of the garden was restored legally in the courtrooms of heaven with Jesus's victory over death and resurrection, his dominance of demonic powers in his earthly ministry. All of those things established it from a legal standp- standpoint. And what we've been doing and what we are continuing to do is progressively advance that dominion. His, the enemies are sickness, oppression, slavery, all of those demonic principalities and powers exist, and we're going to talk about this next week, but have no legal standing. They became, from, on, on the day that Jesus sat, on, sat down on that throne, and that courtroom of heaven ruled, God is sitting there on that throne that Daniel saw, with a river of fire running out of that throne, and the Son of Man came up through the clouds and sat down, and all authority, the, the legal ruling of that court, was that all authority and power and dominion had been restored to a son of man. That's why that term is there, the son of man. A son of Adam had basically come and all of that, all of that dominion that God had, had granted to Adam, that Adam had surrendered and forfeited legally, that, that legal change had taken place. And he sat down at the right hand of the Father, and now he's been ruling for 2,000 years in the midst of his enemies. Those enemies still exist. Oppression, death, all of those things still exist, but they became, in a day, outlaws. Okay, neighbor. Before we bring this rodeo to an end today, let's do page three. How about I share a little insight about how you can take a deeper dive into all I have on offer for you. Well, you can. Sashay on over to DavidAHolland.com. Now, you got to get that A in the middle there. At DavidAHolland.com, you'll find a smorgasbord of stuff that will help you live the sweet life. It's a life of rest and hope and meaning. So until next time, please remember, God is better than you think and you're more loved than you know.